Welcome to the Space Beyond Scarce podcast. I'm your host, life and business coach, Kate Hawley. I work with entrepreneurs and creative change makers who value depth, impact, and purpose. Many of my clients are like me. They dream of creating prosperity through the value they provide, but they also want equity for others and sustainability for our planet. The scarcity mindset of our culture tells us that this dream isn't possible, that we are not enough, that we don't have enough, that there is not enough for everyone, and that's just the nature of reality. But really, it's just the nature of predatory capitalism. I'm glad you're here because we are going to prove that sad story false and make better meaning to build our future with. Here we go. Hey everyone, I'm really excited about today's episode. Uh, today I am airing my interview with Sarah Lazarovic, who is an artist, writer, creator, and climate activist. I've been admiring her work for a while, and I'm really excited to share it with you. In the show notes, you're going to find all kinds of links to the different places where you can see her work. And I recommend even taking a peek at what she does before you listen to today's episode, if you have a moment to do that, so that you can actually see with your own eyes some of the things that I'll be describing. Just a quick note, Sarah was my first interview for this podcast, and I'm still sorting out the technical challenges of remote interviews. So we ended up having to use her computer mic, which means there's a little bit of computer noise in the background. I think it's totally manageable and worth listening to, and I really appreciate y'all being patient with me as I learn the ropes of being a new podcaster. So I hope you'll listen, enjoy, let me know what you think. And now, on to my interview with Sarah Lazarovic. All right, so we have Sarah Lazarovic with us here today. She's an artist, illustrator, and writer whose work centers around consumerism and climate change. Uh, she's based in Toronto. And I first came across Sarah's work in Yes Magazine, which uh, she's a frequent contributor to. And since then, I've kind of gone down the rabbit hole of reading all of Sarah's work that I can get my hands on. Um, she's also the creator of an illustrated book called A Bunch of Pretty Things I Did Not Buy. So thank you so much for being here, Sarah. Thank you for having me. Yeah, um, I, I'm excited to talk to you about all the things. We'll see what we can fit in today. Um, but I wanted to start by saying, just talking a little bit about your work. So I love the way that your work combines humor and kind of whimsy and is incredibly accessible, but it also addresses really challenging and complex ideas around climate change and consumerism. I was curious if you could tell everyone a little bit more about when you first started writing and thinking about these ideas and integrating them into your artistic practice in this way. Sure. Well, thank you so much for such a nice intro and a thoughtful question. Um, you know, I was just um, an illustrator, artist, uh, uh, self, self-styled flannels, um, you know, working my many jobs in illustration and filmmaking for many years when I realized that the climate crisis wasn't going to solve itself. And so that was maybe a dozen years ago, but, um, whereas other people sort of seem to have that, that realization and leap into making work about it 
like, you know, <laughs> in a matter of months or years, it's just been a slow evolution for me from writing about it more and more to eventually shifting to full-time work. But yeah, along the way, I think my work went from being extremely um, superfluous and superficial to somewhat more substantive. But maybe what you're, you're talking about is the, the fact that I still try to preserve an air of whimsy and, and fun because without it, mm-hmm. <laughs> how, do we, how do we embrace these issues <laughs> and stay human? Yeah, totally. Yeah, I think you do such a nice job of balancing that because it is really tricky. Um, So I'd love to talk a little bit about, as I've mentioned to you, this is a podcast where we're exploring the scarcity mindset. And I know that that term can be kind of elusive, or it just means different things to different people. So I love to ask people kind of what is what's your take on that? Or when you hear scarcity mindset, what, what does that make you think of? I probably think of it in more of a behavioral science context. Um, I'm a very uh, armchair <laughs> amateur behavioral scientist and uh, just just uh, wrap my head around it that way. This idea that um, and I, I'm highly I, you did mention very generously my, my first book, which is about consumerism. And I think I've always been this person that worried that she had a um, predisposition towards wanting a lot of stuff. But beneath that, it was, um, I think there's this, uh, it's because I fear and have the scarcity mindset that I won't have enough. And so it's something I'm unduly interested in because I am the kind of person that keeps, you know, um, five pounds of uh, dried beans in my in my pantry. And I have a tendency to, um, you know, uh, veer towards the prepper hoarder mentality. And I think at a broader level, it's just what pervades so much of what is wrong with, with everything. Now, this is not, this is a very rambly answer, (laughs) but, but, uh, it's, it's so much at the root of, of what we're all struggling with this idea that there won't be enough for everyone when in fact there can be enough for everyone. If we just reimagine what is possible. Yeah, totally. I don't think that's rambly at all. I think that's kind of what I think you're speaking to the connection in your work in a really important way that, as you say, it's that feeling that we'll never get enough that leads us to kind of hoard and overconsume. Yeah. Yeah, very much so. And then, you know, the the layer above that of marketing and, um, you know, social social contagion that pushes us to constantly think we need more, bigger, better yada, yada. So many layers to it. But I think, you know, even without that layer, there is just something about us that, that foundationally to, to arrange, I think some people don't have it. And some people do, I sent you this like little essay I wrote a long time ago, just, I think some people really have it baked in and just want to make sure there is always enough. And other people just somehow, rather luckily, don't, don't feel that way (laughs) as much. Yeah, I thought that was so fascinating. I did get a chance to read it and I, I have two kids as well, but I would say both of my kids are the, what do you call them? The stuffest. The ones that like would love to get endless amounts of new things. So I actually don't know that many people who are like your daughter. It sounds like she's a little more naturally austere. Yeah, I think the skew is probably more, I, I call it the stuffest and the nuffest because she's always like, I have enough, I don't need any more. But I don't think it would break down to 50-50 in the population. I think there are many more stuffists among us and the skew is probably like 75-25. But 
I mean, it is remarkable because when you see people like that, and I've, I have a few other friends and, you know, family members who are kind of like that as well. And you're like, wow, you, you just, you don't want to take all the chocolate. <laughs> you just want one piece, you know, <laughs> that is foreign to me. <laughs> I, can't, I can't even imagine a mindset in which I would <laughs> just say, oh, sure, I'll just take this little piece. <laughs> um, but they're not, so I'm not, I'm not saying life is easier for them, but just maybe in this one arena, you know, the people who just have this natural acquisitiveness and without going too deep in the weeds, I think, I think um, it's like, it's almost, it's beautiful to, to like stuff. I mean, we're, 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 that's what my book is about. It's just, you know, we're, we're made to like stuff to see beautiful things and to want to appreciate them. And the next step after that is to want to, you know, in magpie fashion, acquire them, love them, hold them. So it's just a manner of channeling that into a more purposeful way of living and acquiring and, you know, I think at the root of it is this this fear of scarcity. If I don't consume or appreciate or buy this beautiful thing now, I will I will never have it again and there won't be enough and there won't be there won't be anything for me. And it's like when you just wrap your mind around that, you sort of can let go a bit and say, No, it's okay. I don't need all these things. Yeah. Yeah. I loved your um I read your book and I want to talk about that in a little bit, but I what you're saying now reminds me of, I think there's a part in there where you say, you talk about when you see a beautiful thing, either like in an advertisement or in a store, how you can kind of treat it like you're at a museum and you could just try to appreciate it and just experience like that's a beautiful thing, but I don't need to own every beautiful thing in the world. You say it so much better than I do. That's exactly it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's a like, I mean, why wouldn't we when someone, especially when we're looking at really nice things, you know, I'm not talking about, you know, your, your fast fashion, whatever, but like, it's natural to see a beautiful, a beautifully made dress or object or houseware and, and, you know, admire it. And people have put in a lot of work and time and effort and money into making it so that we would want to acquire that thing. So (laughs) there shouldn't be, I guess I used to feel so much shame and guilt over, over wanting these things. And then I realized, no, I, I actually don't need them anymore. And I don't necessarily even want them, but it's okay to just stop and reflect upon their beauty and take that moment of like, what would it be like to have this thing and then realize just appreciating it for a few moments is enough? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And that kind of, um, well, one of the questions I wanted to ask you, I'm going to, I'm going to skip a little bit in my own script for a minute. Cause sure. I feel like this is relevant to what we're talking about. Um, but in your book, the, a bunch of pretty things I did not buy, you said it's a truism that young people need financial education, but don't they need shopping education as well? And I love that idea. And I guess my question is like, if you were going to teach a class on how to shop well, because that's one of the challenges I have as well. If you, you take the time to appreciate the beautiful things, how do you know when it's like, I should buy that beautiful thing <laughs> and it yeah. should become like integrated into my life in a really meaningful way or no. Right. And so I'm kind of curious because you've put so much and time and thought and energy into this. If you have a few, I guess, tips for like, these are ways that we could all be consuming that would support our own ability to have nice things, but also support that kind of sustainability on the collective level. Yeah, I like your, you're reminding me of my book, which I have not read in so long. <laughs> but um, I like your spin on it, because I think you're actually thinking about it from a more sort of aesthetic, beautiful, thoughtful way to live um, 
lens. And I think that that lens is like, we should unpack that too. But even from the first layer of just how to shop as in like, how to know when something is good quality. I think like so many of us weren't taught that growing up, like our parents didn't necessarily care about clothes or things or, you know, things just exist in our household. And perhaps our parents never said, oh, can you see that this is a well-made piece of X, Y, or Z, or these are good quality socks, because a lot of that knowledge has been lost. Like very few among us have, you know, uh, parents who still sew our clothes or, or make, make uh, uh, furniture by hand, right? So that just that knowledge of even knowing is this a thing worth having? Is this something that's going to last? Um, is so hard to come by. And I mean, not, not to denigrate my parents, they're very lovely, but they just don't care about that kind of stuff. So I don't think I ever like looked at the the looked at the label on a garment and said, "Oh, what material is this made of?" And you know, will it last? Or look at how this is is sewn. And then later, when I you know had friends who cared more about these things and would show me like, "Oh, look at the stitching on this," you know, this is very good quality. <laughs> just so when you are spending your hard earned money on the things that matter, you're you're doing so in a way that is logical and meaningful, and you're you're buying good quality things. So it's almost like, you know, we need quality education. And then and then beyond that, do quality things even exist? Because when you do go down the rabbit hole, I'm researching what is the best, most lasting pair of boots to buy, or, you know, lifetime guaranteed backpack to buy, or what have you, can you still reasonably, um, can you still know that it that it is reasonably well made? And oftentimes, you know, you can't because supply chains have changed and manufacturing has changed. So it's such a, a lot of both work and knowledge <laughs> that have been lost. And then then beyond that, there's everything that you and I were talking about. Like, how do you really know when something is actually beautiful, if it is necessary to your life and if it will, you know, enhance it in a way that's meaningful and important and do all the things that you you want and hope that it'll do for you. So that's a really long winded answer, but I'm really interested in all that stuff because I think so much of it is lost. And I think we also have to, we feel like we have to make decisions too hastily and, you know, as a result, we don't necessarily give each purchase the time that it, it, it needs and warrants. Yeah, totally. I know. I, I remember reading, um, you know, the life-changing magic of tidying up the Marie Kondo uh, book years mm-hmm. ago. And uh, as much as, you know, I think it's a little debatable about her contribution to say um, <laughs> the conversation around like not having excessive material. I think that's underlying in it, but it's, there's also a lot of throwing things away in her yeah. model. Um, but I remember though, after I first started playing with it, I realized it was actually a really good guidance system for purchasing. Because if you go through a period where you do throw away everything you're not really enjoying, that and it feels so painful to realize how much waste you've actually created, I think it, for me anyway, it kind of helped me to tune in a little bit better to Oh, interesting. You know, yeah. when you're shopping to be like, well, okay, can I imagine in the future, is this going to hold its value for me? Or is it just something I want today because, yeah, like it's so easy. It's just that shopping, what do they call it? Retail therapy, right? Like that little yes. hit you get when you just buy something. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I think that's totally right too. There's this like, you know, does it spark joy? Um, the problem is that we, we, by the time we get to that point, we've already bought so much crap in our <laughs> retail therapy journey that like we feel gross because all these things that we bought without mindfully shopping are going to go to the bin. But the actual essence of the idea makes sense to me too. Yeah, totally. 
Um, so I wanted to talk uh, a little bit about your the most recent contribution you made to the Yes Magazine issue that they were kind of exploring the what is enough. So a lot of people that I've talked to think that the opposite of scarcity is abundance, um, but that can also be kind of problematic. And I think that the piece that you wrote is a really great, um, it really helps to hone in on the conversation we need to be having about like what is kind of in the middle of scarcity and abundance. Like how do we find that balance where it is in our language, it is sufficiency, but that word isn't very enticing as you point out. So I just thought I would actually read a little um, blip from that article and then we could talk about it. Sure. Yeah. So it's, I love the part where you talk about the language and the culture and a side note, I'm probably going to mispronounce some of these words. (laughs) Oh, me too. I don't think I've said them out loud. (laughs) Go for it. (laughs) Good. So, so you say there's a satisfaction in having just enough, avoiding waste while maintaining comfort. The Swedes call it lagom or just the right amount. Lots of languages and cultures have words for the perfect quality of enoughness. While the Turkish word tamam talks about the precision of the right amount, the Finnish word sopivasti translates to just right. Sufficient makes enough sound drab when it should feel satiatingly great. So I just love this because I have also been struggling with the word sufficient, which is what we mean, but in our culture, it feels, uh, yeah, it feels drab. It feels boring. It feels like it's not satisfactory. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's not at all what we're conditioned to try to strive for when we think about like dreaming big and having like a, you know, abundant life. So I guess I just wanted to talk to you a little bit about, um, have you come across, I don't know, any other ways of talking about this that, that help us find ways in our language to kind of create more appeal to that, that sweet spot that you're talking about? Oh, such a good question. Uh, somebody and somebody gave me a great word on Instagram that I'm now forgetting, and I kind of want to go look it up really quick. <laughs> um, but you, I think you put it perfectly. Um, I love this. It's not a binary between uh, scarcity and abundance. The idea is that enough is abundance, right? Mm-hmm. Like enough. It, when when you have just enough, you feel totally full. You couldn't even imagine anymore. It would be too much. Um, let me just find this funny word that my friend sent really quick. Hopefully you can yeah. word this part out. <laughs> it's, yeah, a funny, totally. it's a funny one, but people put all these great suggestions. Oh, Safonsified. <laughs> what? <laughs> I love this. She linked to some article that she remembered from the paper from like 15 years ago. Safonsified. <laughs> wow. I've never heard that word before. What no, it's say? like a funny, funny. Let this, okay. Let this. It's so great. Uh, hold on. But I think um, it's it's funny, but the the reason we don't have one because it, I realized I was talking to this Swedish guy a few days ago, and this idea of enough it's not just the word itself; it's like everything it connotes in the culture. So we don't have the word, and therefore we don't even have this overarching mentality, you know, of of what it means. Because when he was talking about lagom, he was like, "Oh no, this is just the Swedish way. It's a word, but it's actually like." how people people feel like the equivalent of higgy or like you know what I mean like a word that is so much more than a word um so wait let me say you made my day sufficiently sophonsified 
Where did it come from? My sufficiency has been falsified and any more would be superfluous. Anyway, this is like a silly lark. I think uh, it's fun to find a word and see if we could come up with one. But then the the gambit of trying to make it take across <laughs> the world would probably be too impossible. So people always like toss out the same kinds of ones like, you know, um, satiated, sated. I think I put sated in the cartoon, but they don't have that, that they somehow like all these words just they seem just like I said, satisfactory as opposed to like warm and like fulfilling right whereas maybe it's because we don't know the context of these words in these other languages but just the fact that there is a distinct word or phrase that that speaks to this feeling feels different than applying an English word that is somewhat appropriate and accurate to the Mm -hmm. to the context that we want so I think that's that's the thing like just enough yeah yeah, totally. That's part of why I ended up calling this podcast The Space Beyond Scarce because I couldn't figure out Find another word. word. <laughs> I was just like, oh, that's so good. <laughs> yeah. So I was like, well, I, we're going to explore all of the things that are like in this space that isn't scarcity, but it's not exactly abundance either. It's like this. But you're, I loved what you said, though, that when we have enough, that is abundance because that's what we actually want. We want to feel that sense of just enough. Yeah. I mean, that's what's so desirable. Like actually like too much is you feel full, you feel overwhelmed, you feel cluttered, and then you have to go down a Marie Kondo path and throw things away because (laughs) the abundance Mm -hmm. is suffocating. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. If we have too many choices in our closet, you know, yes. I've then it feels like Choice I don't have anything those. to wear. And they're like, yeah. well, I have so many things to wear that it feels like I don't have anything to wear. And that feels like a ridiculous problem to have. So yeah. Yes. Um, I thought it, I would love to talk to you for a moment about your, um, the hierarchy of needs graphic. Um, cause I know that, well, looking at your website, I think that was one of the first things I came across when I started looking at your work. Um, and I see that you made it a few years ago and it's such a great graphic. I think what I'll do is I wanted to briefly just describe it for listeners if they haven't seen it. I'm also going to link to it in the show notes so people can go check it out. I really love it because it's such a simple and helpful thing that you can just print out and kind of stick it to. I have it on my refrigerator, right? Oh, thank and, you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it um, so it resembles kind of a pyramid like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, but it's meant to be more of a frame of reference for when whether or not you actually need to buy something. And so from the bottom to the top is use what you have, borrow, swap, thrift, make, and then buy is kind of that last resort, like if you can't do anything below it. I I just would love to hear a little bit more about your process when you made that. And I also kind of got the impression that it went viral for you. Could you tell a little bit about that experience? (laughs) Viral in the context of like a very esoteric and niche world of people who are interested in charts to help them streamline their (laughs) consumption habits. (laughs) Yes. But yes, uh, it is. It's funny because I've made so many charts, but that's the one that just seems to stick. So I keep trying to outdo it with new ideas, but I should just be satisfied. It's enough (laughs) to have just made this one viral chart, um, which I appreciate. I just, um, I love that people respond to it. And I guess the, the, I made it, gosh, probably like in 2012, it's it's on the back cover of my book, which came out in 2014. So I think I'd been playing around with ideas in it for a couple of years. Um, But for me, 
the fancy behavioral science term is heuristics, but really just, I try to make these charts that are like tips, you know, shorthands that give you a quick way to understand a really complicated problem. So I think the reason people respond to that one is because it actually really does work. And for so many of us, you know, the first impulse is like, oh, I need this thing, I must go buy it. And then if you just have this little shorthand heuristic, this chart on your wall, or your fridge, you can just say, oh, wait, actually, before I buy it, I can do all these things first, (laughs) that would probably help me find what I need before I, you know, buying should be the last resort. In most cases, you know, maybe there are ways to not have to buy it. Did I answer your question at all? <laughs> yeah, sure. totally. Okay. No, totally. <laughs> Sorry, I, I'm tired. <laughs> yeah, I know it's later where you are. We've got all the, I always still have my caffeinated energy. Of oh, I meant to have a late in the day coffee, but <laughs> I did it. <laughs> I love it. Um, I know it's funny. I tried to use it with my kids because like I mentioned, I have kids who How old are your kids? They're six and nine. Oh, okay. Yeah. And they just like they've kind of got into the modern habit of like, you know, like my youngest is really picky about socks, for example. So if his socks, if there's like anything wrong, he'll just say, I'm not wearing any of these anymore. And let's just go to Target and buy new socks. And I, so I was trying to get them in the habit. I was like, maybe we should go through the hierarchy of needs and see. Oh my God, that's amazing. (laughs) But But, I have to buy my kids socks too. (laughs) Yeah, I know. And at the end of the day, they were, they were very dismissive of all of the ideas after like, (laughs) we have it. They were like, no, we can't do any of those things. We have to buy it. But I kind of, I think it's such an interesting process to go through because it sort of makes you aware of other important life resources that you may be missing, like having enough community or people that you're plugged in with that you could borrow and swap things or like having skills to make things, right? Yep. So much, (laughs) so much of that. Like, do you, because I think a lot of people feel like, oh, who would I even ask to borrow this item from? Like, am I close enough with my neighbor that I could just ask to borrow this? you know, power tool or shirt or what have you. And yeah, I did a whole other cartoon for Yes a while ago. I can't remember what it was called, but it was just basically about how important borrowing is for, you know, social cohesion. And it always comes down to this pretentiously term thing, but just like, what is your, what's the term? Your social, um, Oh, social capital. Your your social capital. Exactly. Thank you. (laughs) My five o'clock brain. Like if you don't have social capital, then you often have to buy stuff because you don't know enough people in your community to feel comfortable asking for someone to loan you something. And, you know, you don't have that like deep web of um, friends and colleagues and family to draw from. And so you end up just being like, oh, I'd rather or, or the or it happened, you know, is it chicken and egg or you just stopped having those things because of the society we live in, which made you think it was always better to just run to the store and buy something when actually having to ask your neighbor for an egg for the cake you were making or to borrow the hairdryer would have built new bonds and made them feel, you know, in a way that they could reciprocate and ask you for things. And um, yeah, anyway, going down a whole other, <laughs> other path. Yeah. But yeah. Well, I think it's a really important path because it's definitely one of the things I've hit on in researching and thinking about scarcity mindset is how much it's influenced by the individualism in our culture and yeah. the kind of focus on privatization, right, of everything. And people have gotten so fixated on that that I, I think a lot of people just feel really uncomfortable. Like it's really socially taboo to... Yeah ask people for things, to ask for help, to try to share things, to to have like non-privatized commons anymore. Yeah. yeah. Um, 
And that just feels so problematic. And I'm not sure. Do you have any thoughts about like, I don't know, (sighs) that culture change? How do we instigate that? (laughs) I'm no expert. I agree with you 100% though. I was just listening to a podcast today. You know how they call it like the third space, like the space beyond the home and work, like the public library or the community garden or just the places where people can congregate together and how COVID has done a number on us because now, you know, the wealthy have retreated into places where they feel safe, i.e. like not going to those spaces. And then the people who really need those spaces can't really access them because they've been closed or they're underfunded or they're in decline. And it's it's such a huge problem. It's like so much bigger than (laughs) anything I could imagine knowing how to solve. But that, that is exactly it. Like, you know, people do feel it's a muscle too, that you feel uncomfortable asking for stuff. So, you know, you have to get yourself back in the habit of, of doing it and, and um, realizing that nobody minds if you post on Facebook, like, can I borrow X, Y, or Z? And people are so happy to to loan things and to share and to be of service. Um, but yeah, I do feel like it's, we're on the wane. Yeah. <laughs> and we need to, we need to like, you know, <laughs> turn this thing around and head back in the other direction, not not just for, you know, climate reasons because there's no need for everybody to own a power drill that they use for five minutes a year you know there's like beyond it's also just for our own personal happiness and fulfillment like we need to be able to share and congregate and borrow things and build things together and yeah Mm. do you find I'm curious because reading your book I got the impression that maybe you were born in America but now you live in Canada is that accurate I was born in Canada, but I grew up in Florida, so pretty accurate. <laughs> okay, so you so you have a pretty good sense of both American and Canadian culture, yes. would you say? I think so. so <laughs> I mean, is it? I'm curious because I'm American, but I have a lot of. Um, I'm like a total Canada file, I guess you would say. <laughs> like, you're in Washington? Really... No, you're not in Washington. You're in... I'm in. I'm in Oregon. Oh, in Oregon, and, yeah, yeah. Um, very much would like to become part of the. Um, the Cascadia region and unite with British. Columbia. Oh, I love this. <laughs> um, but, but until I get my own, you know, whatever entry into Canada for myself, I guess I'm curious. Cause I know that there's a little bit more, um, you know, there's more social safety net in Canada. Do you find that the culture is about the same there in terms of the individualism or is there more of a social orientation there? Hmm, I don't know. It's a minefield. I mean, uh... I guess it's just, we have, we have socialized medicine. So that's helpful because people do strongly believe in that and in pull after pull would never want to, you know, forsake our, our wonderful healthcare system, which has many flaws, but is you know, <laughs> excellent. But I mean, we're on the same trend across so many things. I feel like whatever, whatever happens in America, like Canada's 5% less, <laughs> like, mm. like when from climate sentiment where, you know, we, we mirror we mirror all the patterns in the States, but everything is about, you know, 5% different. Um, I mean, I think it just really depends more on geography uh, in particular as a, uh, beyond the, sorry, this is a really long winded answer again. Um, you know, uh, to generalize for the country as a whole, I think it comes down to the community. You know, like I feel like in my, my particular neighborhood in Toronto, everyone is very community minded, but I don't know if that would be the same for all neighborhoods. And I'm sure there are places in the States that are very community minded. I think there is definitely more of the, you know, U.S., um, the American dream, this idea that, you know, I will achieve this for myself and individualism is on the rise because I don't know. I, I feel like I'm out of my depth and I'll, I'm just expressing, expressing like 
the same the same sentiments that lots of people have, but I don't have the the depth of expertise to really opine as to why. But I guess in my my anecdotal corner, I do feel there's a bit more more sharing and community mindedness in Canada, which is probably why I live here. <laughs> um, yeah, to the extent that I didn't feel when I when I was living in Florida, for sure. Okay, well, it's good to hear just for personal reasons. I'm always trying to, you know, validate whether. <laughs> whether um, I, I'll sponsor you. I'm, <laughs> I'm a huge proponent of Canada. I just don't yep. want to, to make broad sweeping statements. <laughs> yeah, I totally. Do, yeah. That makes sense. And, you know, I, I think it's, yeah, it's a question, right? Because I see how there's this sentiment is a, it's sort of traveled around the world and it's really transcended a lot of cultures, um, as, you know, especially the consumerism that we've been talking about just as everything, everyone's got more access to it. I think it probably drives a little bit of that. Oh, well, if I can go buy it for myself or if I can get it really cheap online, you know, why would I go to the library or why would I, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I'd be curious what the actual numbers are when it comes to public funding of these spaces. I mean, but on the other side of it, on the consumption side, Canadians really have caught up to the U.S. I remember like when I was a kid, just thinking, I remember Canadians would come visit us and then be like amazed at the, you know, um, abundance of choices when it came to breakfast cereals and like buy them to bring them home. But like in almost every respect, I mean, still my husband and I talk about the fact that like, you know, there's maybe 20 kinds of peanut butter in Canada and 50 kinds when Mm -hmm. you go to a grocery store south of the border. But I think like our, if you look at our spending and if you look at our per capita emissions, like Canada is tied, if not worse than the U S so we're, we're, we're keeping up there with the consuming. Does it, do we still have a different mindset when it comes to community? I think to some extent we do, or at least there's a, um, a national identity that like, you know, tries to, to make that, make that argument. And I fall prey to it and definitely think that there's something to it. Um, but I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's fair. You know, the, the difference between the image you portray and the actual data behind it. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think it's in my head because we're putting this climate course that you and I were speaking about and um, we we're just trying to, you know, show the actual stats because there's a general um, vibe that we're so great here in Canada. But if you actually look at a lot of the things like some there's some data that like 89 percent of Canadians think we're doing really well on climate. But, you know, we are, I think, the ninth uh, largest emitter <laughs> of emit. Like so. So there's just a, some there's a distinction between, you know, what what we want to what what we want to be and what we see for ourselves and the actual fact of the matter. And that's just in one arena, like in other arenas, I'm sure, you know, we have varying degrees of success, but this idea that we are exceptional and that we've never, we're, that we're not nearly as bad at X, Y, or Z as, as things in the States, like maybe on healthcare, like you won't be turned away from healthcare in the States. You'll, you know, you won't get a bill for $40,000. And um, there are various articles that always come out that talk about the fact that the the American dream is alive and well in Canada. Like social mobility is is much easier in Canada for a number of reasons. Schooling is cheaper. Post secondary mm. education is a lot cheaper. But like, but still, <laughs> this idea that <laughs> Canadians like to tell themselves that that they're amazing, that we're amazing, but you know, in a lot of ways, we we're not doing yeah. so great. <laughs> yeah, I could see that. Um, so I. There was another part of your book that I made a little note about. Um, I can't remember exactly how you put it, but it was where you were you were kind of talking about how minimalism itself has become a kind of a commodified trend. So you were like, oh, there's so many pretty things you can buy when you start looking into minimalism, right? Um, 
And I think for me, that speaks to the way that it feels like every new cultural idea or social movement gets commodified in our culture. Um, you know, personally, I've I come from a yoga background and I've watched it happen to yoga, right? And oh my mindfulness. <laughs> and yes, you know, it's yes. It's happened to feminism. It's happened to like every revolutionary idea. Everything just gets commodified and turned into like, oh, there's the thing you can buy to show that that's your deal. Um, And it almost feels like we've been so trained to think of ourselves as consumers, as our core identity. So I guess my question or just, you know, open conversation, but do you have any thoughts about how people can meaningfully resist this commodification of everything? Oh, <laughs> that's why I use the hierarchy of needs. Cause I see myself too, you know, like you follow these, these people on Instagram who are somewhat environmental, but it's all like buy this beautiful bamboo toothbrush or, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> and you're just like, mm, yeah, better than buying a plastic toothbrush, but it's still just like this mindless hamster wheel of consumption. I mean, you do need to brush your teeth, but like, like I just, it's that constant, like, you know, um, I always bring it back to like the system one, system two um, behavioral science. Like, you know, you're impulsive, like, oh, I covet this thing and I'm swept up into this, this moment of appreciation for this stuff. And then system two, like, oh, this is just commodifying something that doesn't need to be commodified. I mean, you do divide toothbrush, but just so much of the, you know, gloss around around a way of thinking just becomes so consumeristic as soon as it, as soon as people sniff out that there's money to be made from it. So there's, there's no good answer there, but I feel the exact same way. I'm constantly like, Okay, if you if you need a if you need a thermos, buy a new thermos, but don't buy a zero waste kit because you think it's going to help you waste less. Yeah, right? like if you already have if you already have all those things in your house, just use those. Yeah, absolutely. And I feel like it's just gotten worse with social media, right? Because the marketing yes. is so much better than it used to be. Like it really is actually yes. good at knowing what you actually like and and showing it in a very integrated yes. way with how other people are living. And oh my so- god. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and it's only going to get better, which is why we do have to just have these critical faculties and abilities because, you know, whereas I used to get, you know, some generic ad from a generic fast fashion retailer. Now they only show me, you know, high waisted jeans and naturally soft looking mm-hmm. <laughs> like blends because they know so much more about me and they know that's what I like. And so when I see it, I actually do like it and yeah. <laughs> appreciate it. And I have to tell myself to stop and it's only going to get better and better and better. So, yeah. Okay. So I'd love to talk for a minute because I know that you do a lot of work around the issue of climate change. Um, and I certainly see a link between scarcity mindset and climate change, but I'm curious. Um, we've talked a little bit about how how scarcity mindset might be a driver for that sense of not having enough that might be driving consumerism. Do you, uh, I guess my question is, do you see other possible links between our scarcity mindset as a culture and our challenges with resolving climate change? Well, it's really interesting. Yeah, for sure. I mean, a lot of the things like we've just had an election here in Canada and, you know, a lot of the initial thinking um, uh, in in the climate comm space was that, you know, this was going to be an election about climate 
And I hate to be the cynic, but I'm always the one that says it's never going to be an election of climate about climate when people feel threatened and feel scarcity mindset. And, you know, I wouldn't say there's ever a time when the whole population is is at peace and sated. But if there was ever a time when people didn't feel <laughs> um, like they had enough, it might be in the middle of the biggest global pandemic everyone had, anyone has ever known <laughs> who's alive right now. So, you know, I think the thing to keep in mind is that, you know, climate doesn't go away, but this idea that people are going to drop everything and um, mobilize on climate when they feel so vulnerable and when, you know, the scarcity mindset muscle is activated because jobs are precarious because they're worried about the safety of their family. You know, I think it's in these, in these moments of vulnerability that scarcity mindset like materializes all the more so because, you know, you are worried. And when you, when you're worried, I just always say it's about protecting the core, you know, you protect the core, your family, your home, the things that you absolutely need to survive. And, you know, I was just reading, I can't remember if it was in Bloomberg or where, but it was just talking about um, the energy shocks in China and, you know, some some guy in a village was just saying, you know, they think these these coal shortages are due to, you know, environmental uh, progressivism and like China's efforts to curb emissions. And he's like, if it comes down to whether I'm going to burn coal to warm my house or <laughs> protect the environment, I'm going to burn coal to keep my house. So I guess it's just to me, scarcity mindset until we address it at this level of you know, widespread deep reckoning is, oh, it's always going to be the thing that precludes us from really wrapping ourselves around climate, even as we absolutely have to address climate yesterday. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Yeah. This feels um, true to me as well. And it's part of why I wanted to dive deeper into the issue. Um, And also I've, I guess one of the challenges I'm noticing I'm having even in the material I'm working with is making the translation of when we're working on scarcity mindset in our own kind of interpersonal lives, like, which, you know, a lot of people come to it because they just are trying to say, make more money or create more resources in their life. And they realize that their scarcity mindset is actually stopping them. Um, And it feels like another stretch to kind of get people not only to not be thinking that way in their own life, but then to Mm. also not think that way in the collective life. Um, I I guess I'm, I'm sort of curious, have you, have you, how have you personally gotten to a point where you can see the solutions, not from a scarcity fear, but more from that perspective that there is actually enough? Oh, that's a really good question. I mean, I don't know that I have. Um, I feel like it's an endless, you know, <laughs> like e- even as the social fabric in Canada makes me feel comforted in so much as I don't worry about, you know, not having health care for my family. I, I don't worry as much as I would in the States about like being a freelancer and not having benefits for dental care, this, that, and the other. Um, I think when you exist in, in a certain society, it's baked in. And I constantly say, am I putting enough away for this? Am I saving enough money for my child's education? Do I have enough? Because that is so much the dominant mantra. And what this Swedish fellow was kind of getting at, um, you know, when he was talking about the culture of Lagom, like, you know, he was like, there aren't people on the street homeless to the extent there are 
in other places like Canada or the Pacific Northwest, right? In, in Sweden, the social safety net ensures against that. You know that you'll be okay. And as a result, like, you know, these, the, the, there's only so much work that we can do as individuals to sort of, and I don't know if you'll agree with this, but like to, to, to guard against that scarcity mindset. Like if the society we live in doesn't provide for us, then it's, it's natural that people default to this sort of must protect my own family, must get ahead, must do everything I can because the state won't protect me. My community won't protect me. I don't have a social social, I don't have social capital enough to know that I will be fine. So yeah, I, I, I know that I'm a lucky person living in a, a fairly safe and, and um, warm country, but like, I, I think I wrestle with it still all the time, even as I say, we have enough. And um, yeah, I don't know. How about you? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I agree yeah. completely. And I think that's that really is the heart of what's so tricky about this is that um, it's like I've been saying a lot lately. We have there is enough for everyone. There's plenty for everyone. But people can't get to the plenty because of the systems that we've built. Yeah. And, you know, we've built systems that are very on purpose, um, not, not allowing for a sort of distribution of resource that would be sufficient. Yeah. So it is like getting, it's so tricky because I feel like this whole project I'm embarked on is trying to get people to see something that is true, but that they don't have evidence for right in front of them. <laughs> right. Because yeah. that's the thing is like, yeah, this is, theoretically true but only if we make it so because we're currently choosing the opposite and we're reinforcing the opposite and you're totally right that it's not there's only so much we can do as individuals and yet you know as the people that theoretically influence the laws and the policies and you know the leaders we yeah. we have to we have to somehow see beyond um the excuses that i guess people make that we don't have enough to do this. Yeah. And I think that that individual power is incredible and why your work is meaningful and so relevant um, and is very much the same as climate, right? Like no individual is going to solve climate change, but just by, you know, airing these ideas and realizing that, you know, individuals will galvanize the systemic change that needs to happen it's beneficial. <laughs> like definitely, you know, it's just, um, and, and I think it's probably somewhat comforting and it can do a lot of the work individually. Like if you are aware of it as an individual, you're, you're, you're constantly trying to push back against these things that society's throwing at you. It's just that <laughs> beyond that, you won't always be able to, to guard against. Yeah. Yeah. It. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I really appreciate you, Sarah. I love your work and um, I'll link to all your stuff in the show notes so that people can go check it out and see it. It's really worth seeing with your eyes because it's so visual, everything that you do. So thank um, you. Yeah. And thank you so much for chatting with me today. It was really fun. Thank you for everything. And I'm excited because I'll see you tonight on the course. Yes, you will. I'll see you there. Okay. Take care. You too. Bye. Bye. I hope you all enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. For this week's takeaway assignment, based on my interview with Sarah, I would recommend going and taking a look at her hierarchy of needs and think about how you can integrate that into any of the purchases that you might be considering in the next week or two. It might help lead you to new discoveries about where you have hidden resources. Let me know how it goes. As always, you can reach out to me through my website, 
kateholly.com, K-A-T-E-H-O-L-L-Y.com. And I do recommend heading over there and signing up for my weekly newsletter. If you haven't already, it has a lot of great content and it gives you the chance to communicate with me directly. All right, everyone, I will be back with you next week. Thanks for listening to today's episode of The Space Beyond Scarce. If you enjoyed this episode, please go over to Apple iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a five-star rating and review. It really helps out a new podcaster. Thank you. Thank you.